nation was riveted by the sudden death and resuscitation of a football player, Damar Hamlin. And it's interesting that you ask, we ask, um, how did this one person so capture the attention of our nation? Um, and I think it, it captured our attention because of the suddenness of it. Um, and yet at the same time, you realize in the past year, 270 athletes have suddenly died. And it makes you stop and think, okay... When you realize how quick and sudden death can be, I think it riveted people's attention to see someone just drop over. I mean, most of us never see someone drop over. And it reminded us of our own mortality, the brevity of life, And um, you've heard me say many times the quote that got my attention a number of years ago, to see God in every circumstance in life makes life the greatest adventure of all. I see this as God giving a wake-up call to, to our nation to life is short, you have no control over it, There's more going on than meets the eye. And for us to step back and say, what really is important in life? What what really matters in life? What is eternal? You know, the, the longer you live, a little more focused, a person's um, perspective on life can become. I'm not saying everyone that's lived a long time has a, a right perspective, but the perspective of um, realizing, you know, my life isn't going to be forever, my strength isn't going to be forever, my resources aren't forever, and And you soon even realize, my family isn't forever. I mean, you know, we we enjoyed our seven children, and it's the natural progression. They grow up, they go establish their own families, they have that. Our, Our family, as we once knew it, isn't the same, and it isn't going to be forever. So you ask, what? What is forever? And, and that's a good question to ask. And, and really, if you spend time in it, um, our soul will be forever. God's Word is forever. And the church, the bride of Christ, is forever. Other than that, there's nothing forever. So... Those three things should be 
top priorities in our life, to take care of my soul, to saturate in the Word of God, and be committed to what God said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's, he's very committed to it. As we sang, He sent His Son to purchase it, to be His bride. There's going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is um, the church as His bride. So, it would be key for us to understand this. And it's interesting, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, to the believers that gathered at Ephesus like you do here, and he is addressing them. They're going through difficult times, enduring persecution, and Paul has a prayer that is recorded here in the last part of this chapter. And Paul's prayer wasn't that the government would change. It wasn't that the economy would improve. It wasn't that persecution would cease. But his prayer was that there would be glory in the church. In, in the first part of the passage that we read, he said, God has given manifold wisdom and he wants it to be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. In other words, he says, God has designed for his wisdom to be manifested through the church even to those in, in the heavenlies, the principalities and powers in the heavenlies. But you notice at the end of this, after he comes down, he prays that they'd be strengthened in the inner man, that they'd know fully the love of God. And he says the whole purpose for it is that there would be glory in the church. In verse 21, to him be glory in the church in Christ Jesus. So we ask, what would it mean that there would be glory in the church? To some, glory in the church means a packed house and no room for anyone to sit and needing to expand. To some, it means glory in the church would be to have top-rate facilities and excellent programs for all ages and informative and interesting sermons and um, doing noticeable things that others would notice, ooh, look what they're doing. To some, it would be fellowship and teaching, worship, But the primary purpose of a church is to glorify God. So we need to ask, what is there that really glorifies God? The question is not, are we happy with the church? People say, I'm, I can't find a church I'm happy with. Well, 
Maybe that's the wrong question you're asking. It's not finding something we're happy with. It's finding something God's happy with and joining Him in it. And, and it is important that we make it our goal and our purpose to be a church that God is happy with. It doesn't matter if the community's happy with it. It doesn't matter if we're happy with it. If God's not happy with it, there's not going to be glory to God. And, and so we need to come back and, and ask ourselves, um, what is it? This is us coming back again, reminding ourselves, what is it that glorifies God in the church? Leonard Ravenhill, who was a a great revivalist, said, We are so far removed from biblical Christianity, we're so satisfied to play church, that we can go without any signs of supernatural power. If the supernatural power of God were removed from our personal lives and from our church life, would there be any difference? There ought to be. And it is the power of God that brings glory to God. And this morning, I want us to be reminded and to bring our focus back because it's so easy to, to get in where we just do church. And... And tonight we'll be dealing with this. This is kind of like the, the intermission between our Minor Prophet Christmas series now today. And then we get going with the Minor Prophets. And, and I believe God's just leading me, leading us to focus and be reminded of the fundamentals of how do we glorify God? Are we a church? that shows forth the glory of God and and to be reminded of that. So, in answer to the question, how is God glorified in a church? Number one, God is glorified when truth is proclaimed. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Second Timothy 4 and verse 1. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul, writing to Timothy, realized the battle is always over truth. And he said, 
Remember, you're going to answer to God someday. He begins the passage with that. So he said, you're going to answer to God for what you do, so here's what you need to do. Preach the Word. There will come a time, he said, when people will not want to hear sound doctrine. They won't want to hear the truth. They want to hear something that makes them feel good, something that they agree with. And he says, no, you need to preach the truth. Even when the truth is not popular. Um, In the time of Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus, it wasn't a popular thing to proclaim Jesus Christ alone is Lord and Savior. That wasn't a popular thing. But it still was the truth. It's still what needed to be said. It is rapidly becoming where more and more people do not want to hear the truth. So, if our purpose is to gather people, then you need to adjust it to gather people. But when our purpose is to glorify God, regardless of how people respond to it, we need to proclaim the truth in love. And not only proclaim the truth, we need to live the truth. We need to, of course, proclaim it here, but in our daily lives to identify with truth, to stand with truth. So there is no way that God is glorified in a church that compromises the truth, that adjusts the truth, that... um, Add something to the truth. The first and foundational principle throughout all of history of people committed to following Christ's ways is that the Bible is our only rule for authority and practice. That means we must be students of the Bible. That means we must allow it to dictate our life. But this is all we have and it is all we need. And it is important for us to realize that. That we must be committed to truth. The day may come when a commitment to truth may mean um, you no longer have a tax-exempt status. Well, fine. It may mean you no longer can open your doors. Well, fine. It's not an option of changing the message. We must be committed to the truth of God's Word, even to the point, as throughout history we've seen, even to the point of death. We have a trail of blood throughout history of individuals that have given their life for Christ because they were not willing to turn away from truth. I'm not standing here saying I hope that day comes. I'd prefer it not to. But we must have a love for truth that supersedes everything else. 
And God is glorified when truth is proclaimed, not only verbally, but by our lives. Secondly, God is glorified when lives are transformed. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. When God's Spirit, as a result of truth being proclaimed, when God's Spirit works in a heart and transforms it from death, spiritually dead, to spiritually alive, when it's transformed from guilty and condemned to forgiven and justified, restored, when it's transformed from darkness to light, when it's transformed from fear to faith, from torment to peace, that glorifies God. When, when a life is transformed from being controlled by the passions of the flesh, anger and lust and greed and to now being controlled by the Spirit of God, that glorifies God that people say, boy, I knew that person before, but they're like a, they're like a different person. Or that isn't natural how they're responding. That's right, it's supernatural. It isn't natural to respond in a transformed manner. And so... Our purpose is to proclaim the truth and through the truth that we become more and more Christ-like. That's a transformed life. He immediately transforms us when we trust Christ, but we ought to continually be growing in Christ. But God is also glorified when through our transformed life we proclaim the truth to others And God uses our lives to transform others' lives. When souls get saved, God is honored. When souls are brought from darkness to light, God is honored. When when we are the the channel, the instrument, the, the garden hose that brings the living water to a soul... And they are transformed. There's nothing else in the Bible that says there's joy in heaven over. But it does say there is joy in heaven over one soul that is transformed by the power of God. That glorifies God. And that's what we ought to be asking ourselves. Is my life transformed? And am I being used of God as an instrument to see transformation by God brought to other lives? God is is not glorified just because we gather. If we're not showing the difference He makes in our life and we're not touching the lives of others to make a difference in others, He's not glorified. He's glorified through our transformed lives that then are instruments in His hand 
to transform others. Thirdly, God is glorified in a church when genuine love is manifested. In the passage that we read earlier, in verse 17, he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and depth and length and height to know the love of Christ which passes all knowledge. To know the love of Christ. Genuine love. Our memory verses. It's a commentary on what genuine love is. Humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, is really a a commentary on, on what true, genuine, agape love is. I, I want to read to you, we're all familiar with uh, 1 Corinthians 13, but someone paraphrased it in, in this manner, and, and I, I just, it helped me see it in a little different perspective. I, I'm just going to begin in verse 4. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut. It doesn't have a swelled head. It doesn't force itself on others. It isn't always me first. It doesn't fly off the handle. It doesn't keep score of the sins of others. It doesn't revel when others fail. It takes pleasure in the flowering of truth. I I like that. In in the blossoming of truth. It puts up with anything. It trusts God always. It always looks for the best. It never looks back, but keeps looking to the end. Love never dies. And in the chapter, it, it goes into, now we see through a glass darkly. Here it says, we don't yet see clearly... We're squinting in a fog. Good illustration of it this morning, all right? You don't see. We now are in a fog, peering through a mist. But it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then. See it all as clearly as God sees us, knowing Him directly, just as He knows us. But for right now, until that completeness... We have three things to do to lead us toward that consummation. One, trust God steadily, hope unswervingly, and love extravagantly. And the best of these three is love. When God sees us doing this, which is impossible for man to do, He is glorified because He knows He is in control. And this is the very heart of God. These characteristics of love are are beyond us. It can't happen. It won't happen. And, And we may in our own effort say, Boy, I'm going to try to be more patient or I'm going to try to be forbearing. 
We can't do it. It is the power of God that must be at work in our lives. And then when that happens, as our dependence upon Him happens, then God is mightily glorified. And this is what Paul prayed. He said, I want you to know the fullness of the love of God so that the principalities in heaven would say, wow, look at those people. God, they're doing your nature. So that there would be glory in the church that, that the people in the community would say, well, you know what? There's one thing there. Those people are committed to their God and committed to each other. See, we're all designed by God and all designed so differently. And, and yet, that's why God's put us in a church body to learn genuine love. See, if I, if I just withdraw myself from other people, all of these characteristics of love are interpersonal, aren't they? I can say, I'm patient. I never see anybody in my life. I never intersect with anybody. Yeah, I'm patient with myself. See, the real test of whether you're a believer or not is get in and identify and become active in a local church, not just showing up, hearing a message, active where you're rubbing elbows with other sinners and you're rubbing elbows with people that might rub you the wrong way and then you're going to find out what you got inside of you. And that's what he says one of the purposes of this is why we are to gather. And, and he says, and you ought to be gathering so much the more the closer you see the day is approaching because we need to encourage, we need to build up, we need to help each other. And in so doing, he says, then you're going to develop genuine love. And God says, I'm, I'm honored by that. When, when you manifest genuine love, God is glorified. Because no man can take credit for it. So those unlovable situations are opportunities for us to manifest, for us to show love. The fourth way to glorify God is through generous giving. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. <clears throat> God is glorified in our lives and in a church when, when we are generous givers. 2 Corinthians 9.8 But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one of us give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly, nor of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, 
that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. So, he says, if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you sow abundantly, you will reap abundantly. And he says, God loves to show his power when we give. And he says, I am able to make, notice verse 10, I think it is, verse 8. And God is able to make, notice this, all grace abound, notice these superlatives that he uses here. All grace abound toward you that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. There are seven superlatives that he uses here. He says, when you give, I, I, will, I will make you have all grace for everything in every good work. That's a promise of God. And God is glorified through it. And, and the reality is, That we need to be reminded and not forget part of the blessing that God has had on this church body is that this church body has been generous in giving. I have no idea. I'm not going to go back and add it up. But we've given hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars, for missions projects, for various things. And you know what? We have never lacked for one thing. Have you ever heard me up here saying, you better be putting money in that black box. Have you ever seen in the bulletin, this is our budget and this is what we're getting and it's not coming in. Have you ever seen that? No. And I want to see it in your life. I don't even want to go on this, well, the tithe is, you know. Yeah, don't worry about the tithe. Give 15%. Give 20%. It is God. He said, you can't outgive me. And God is glorified so that we say, wow, you know what? We gave $50,000 to that project. And look, at we get the budget and we still have the same balance that we had before. How can that happen? Glory to God. That's the only way it happens. And you know what? You're robbing yourself of the joy and the reward in eternity if you're not a part of that. I'm not saying this because we need money. In fact, sometimes money is more of a pain than it is, you know, what do we do with this? We don't want to heap it upon ourselves. But the reality is, God is mightily glorified. And, and early on, he, he took me to the schoolhouse to teach me this. 
I said, God, if, if you'll, when we first came, God, if you'll pay off our indebtedness, we'll do something for mission. And God says, here's a test, buddy boy. You do something for missions, and I'll pay it off. I thought, uh, I don't know about that. And, and we took, I took steps hesitantly, and God showed His grace. And the more steps that we took as a church body, you took as a church body, the more God showed His grace. And indeed, He did. He said, okay, I see you're willing to give. And in a short amount of time, he paid off all the indebtedness that we were struggling with paying the monthly payments for. And it is glory to God. It isn't anything for us. But God is glorified when we are generous, not just in our monies, but generous in our time, generous in our service. God says, I can make all grace abound to you in everything that you always, having everything you need for every good work. Ooh, that covers it all, doesn't it? And that is glorifying to God because you're able to say, you know what, God burdened me to give this. I don't know exactly how it's going to happen, but you see God provide for you. And you say, thank you, Lord. And God is glorified through that. So, these four points should be prayer requests in praying for our church. God, help our church to be true to the Word of God. Help us to proclaim it in every class, in every service, and in every life that we would live it. And God, help my life to be transformed And help our church body to grow in you and be transformed. And God, would you please use us to see other people's lives transformed. There's nothing like the joy of seeing people saved. And God, would you use us to that end. And Lord, help me to manifest genuine love in this situation tonight. Um, we'll hand out the care groups. And you're going to look at your care group and some of you will say, that person was in my care group last month and I was sure, sure hoping they'd be in a different one this year. Do you believe God's in control of every detail? You know, they... Back when I was a kid, you'd repeat classes. He's repeating the second grade. means he didn't get it. So, rather than look at like, oh boy, say, here's an opportunity for me to learn genuine love. Here's an opportunity for me to grow. And Lord, help us as a church to manifest genuine love. And Lord, help me and help us as a church to be generous in, in our giving. So we ask these 
and honestly, these ought to be self-examining questions. Number one, do I love truth? Well, let me ask you this. How much did you read the Bible this last week? That gives a pretty good indication how much you love truth. How much do you think about the truth of God's Word? Do I love truth? Secondly, have I truly trusted Christ and and allowed Him to transform my life? The third one, does my life show transformation? I mean, it ought to show the transformation in, in our home. I mean, our kids ought to be able to see that we're growing in Christ. That we're not still battling the same sin of impatience or anger or greed. Or Does my life show transformation? And then, do I bring the message of transformation to others? I mean... They're dead people all around us. And they need life. Are, are we bringing them this message that here, this is something that brings dead people to life. There are people filled with anxiety and torment. And here is something that will work. It's been evident in my life. That it gives me a peace that passes all understanding, knowing my sins are forgiven. I mean, are we an instrument that God can flow through to bring the message of transformation to others? And then am I characterized by genuine love? Is that Are these characteristics that we talked about Are they a part of my life? And then number six, am I a generous giver? Generosity in my mind, in my thoughts. Rather than thinking evil, rather than attaching bad motives, am I generous? Do I think what is best? Am I willing to share what God has entrusted to me and give it to others? It's interesting, in Ephesians chapter 3, he closes by saying, Now to him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, God is able to help us to have genuine love. God is able to to teach us to, to give generously. God is able to transform us. And he says, as... We depend on God's ability. There will be glory in the church. But God has to work, find in us hearts that are willing to be channels that He can flow through. God wants to show His glory and power. Not in ways that we imagine, but in ways that are only through His power. And Paul's prayer was not that the government would change, that the economy would improve. It wasn't that persecution would end. He said, my prayer 
is that there would be glory in the church. Heavenly Father, I pray that that would be our prayer. That this would be a body of believers that are committed to glorifying You. And Lord, I pray that we would examine our own life and see where we are and see what steps You want us to take. Lord, if there's one here today that has never trusted You for the forgiveness of sins, I pray that today they would go from spiritually dead to spiritually alive by calling unto You to forgive their sins and save their soul. Lord, I pray for every believer here. I pray that we would take personal, that, that we'd understand this is what really matters. This matters more than our job, more than our savings, more than our possessions, more than anything else. And Lord, that we would be to the praise of Your glory, by being instruments usable in your hand, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.